If I haven't met you yet, my name is Joel. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be together with each of you today. We have been going through a series called Encounters with Jesus. This is an opportunity to look at different stories in the Gospel of John and meet people who met Jesus. So like, you know, for us to experience through them what it was like to meet Jesus. And today is a very special story. I don't know, this story has always meant a lot to me. It's one of those stories where like, as I've prepared this week, I literally said, man, I need like four sermons, maybe more, to just cover all the ground that's in this text today. But um, this will not be like an hour sermon, I don't think at least. Um, and, and I won't give you four sermons, but I'm gonna really try to stick to what it was like to meet Jesus. That's, that's the theme of this series. So like, what was it really like for this woman to meet Jesus, to, for us to really go there and think about that? Uh, to get started, I thought about how some people are car people. I, there's probably a few people in the room who are, you're a car person. Like, you know facts about cars that like I've never would ever dream of knowing. Um, I know for a fact that Robbie's a car guy. Like he he buys and sells cars, and he knows like like what I don't know. What did you tell me this week? Some line running out of the transmission part, and it was broken, and he fixed it or something. I was like, wow, that's that's interesting. Okay. Um, now, if you're not a car person, I think like most like I don't know. I don't know what the popular. I'm not even gonna venture to guess what the population of who's car people, who's not a car, but you know, like, if you're like me, I'll just say it like that. It's not that I'm not a car person, but I, well, I'm not, I'm definitely not a car person, but I would say I love, you know, there's certain cars that like, those are nice cars. I recognize that, I see the beauty, the art, and, and making a car, and well, that's fast. I like fast, that's cool. And, and so I can at least appreciate cars. And then maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a step below that where you just like could care less at all about a car, you're like that's metal, that gets me from point A to point B, and you drive like a Crown Victoria like Craven does. Um, maybe that's you, I don't know. Um, but, I'm kidding. Um, pick on the elders today. So, where am I going with that? Oh, when I was in college, um, again, I'm not a car person, but I really wanted a certain car. It was, I don't know why you're gonna make fun of me, but it was a Chevy Tahoe. I just thought that was like a cool truck. That was like a great looking truck, one I'd like to drive. And I had in my mind, man, if I get that car, people are gonna really respect me, you know? You drive that car and like it makes a difference for like how, how you come across to people. So uh, that was it. I was like, one day I'm gonna drive that car. Well. When I was in college, I had the opportunity to buy one of those cars. It just hit perfect. There was one that came available. Uh, I think my dad helped me with a loan, and, and I bought a Chevy Tahoe. And I was like, this is great. This is the car I always wanted to drive, and I'm driving that car. And, you know, it really worked. People would look at uh, me, and they'd go, hey, nice car. It, it was exactly what I was going for. They liked my car, and I kept it clean. Uh, you know, I tried to do a few upgrades uh, on the car, and it, you know, I was proud of it. Then, a few months in, after those car payments, those hefty car payments happen, and you have a little problem here and there with that truck, and, and then, you know, some of the shininess of it wears off. It wasn't new, but like, you know, the shininess of a used truck wears off. I was going, you know, this isn't as 
much as I thought it would be. This is not, you know, it's, it's not all that it's wrapped up to be. Maybe you've been there before. You, you've thought of like, if I could just have this, this pair of shoes, that clothing, that car, that house, like, man, that's going to be great. I can just feel it, how people are going to receive me, what it's going to be like. And we go there in our minds, and then we get that thing. Are you with me? And we realize it's not all that it's built up to be. And in fact, most of the time, we're pretty disappointed, I think. That's been my experience and through the years. That drives me to this point of like where we find our satisfaction I mean, you're going you're gonna to know where I'm going with this. Like, uh, you know, it's that Christian answer. Where do you find your satisfaction? And, and like, if you're in church, you're supposed to say, Jesus. And I am going there. I, wanna, I want us to get to this point where we would go, yeah, Jesus is the only one who can truly satisfy me. I believe that. Maybe there's some of you who don't quite believe that yet, and that's Okay. But I really believe with all my heart, and maybe as a Christian, you would go, yeah, I, I agree with you. Jesus is the only one who will truly satisfy me. But there's a part of you like that that's not the way in which your life is playing out right now. There's a part of you where like you're looking to other things to find satisfaction and not Christ. So that's where we're going with this story, because in it, I see a woman who meets Jesus, and she really comes to a place where she says, this is it. In Jesus, I have found someone where I find complete satisfaction. My deepest longings are being answered in him. So why is it that she says that? Why could she go, like after this encounter with Jesus, why is it that she can be like, this is it, he's it. And I'm going to sum it up in three phrases here because it's only in Jesus that she is truly seen. This is, why, this is how I think she, she realizes this is where I will find my satisfaction because she, she realizes it's only in Jesus where she is truly seen. It's only in Jesus where she is truly known. And it's only in Jesus where she knows she is truly loved. To be known, to be seen, and to be loved. That's what our human hearts are longing for, and that's what she finds in Jesus. I'm going to just walk through this text. I'm going to bounce around a little bit because I want to hit it under those headings. You, You think about this. Look at how Jesus sees this Samaritan woman when she, um, and I'll, I'll just start with at the very top though. Uh, I just lost my place, but I think it's in verse three where it says that he had to pass through Samaria. Isn't that interesting? Because uh, if you know some of the context here, you would know that he didn't have to pass through Samaria. Uh, That was verse 4. He left Judea in verse 3, and he departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Well, technically, yes, if you wanted to go the most direct route, you would go through Samaria. But for the Jews of that day, they did not take the most direct path the way in which they would operate it was to go around Samaria. You know, you see later in the conversation where she says, or where the author says that, like, Jews and Samaritans don't have dealings. That was because uh, they hated each other. 
And I'll talk more about that in a second, but he had to pass through Samaria. Why is it that he had to pass through Samaria? And, there, and that's been a lot of debate. You know, scholars look at that. What, what did John mean by that? And I've landed at a spot where I, I believe he's saying Jesus had an appointment with this woman. He knew, he saw this woman, and he wanted to be there to talk with her that day. And, uh, you know, just, this is just a side note, a little application as we kind of go here. You'll find, as I have found, if you follow Christ, that as you walk through your days, there'll be moments where you think, I'm going here for a certain reason, and there'll be a totally different reason why you're there. Because Jesus has someone there for you to meet along the way. That uh, the disciples could have never guessed that them going through Samaria would be for this woman. And yet, I really think he ends up, Jesus ends up spending a couple days there. I think Jesus had divine appointment here with this woman. Uh, I think back to my own life a couple, oh, I guess it's more than a couple summers ago, but a few summers ago, I was working on a project, and I met a guy in the midst of working on this project, and he, he had a lot of needs. Um, he was coming back from some rehab, and he was, um, at the time, he was, he was homeless for a little bit, and, and when I met him working on this project, initially, I thought it was so... I could get some help getting some work done. You know, I needed uh, some work done, and I talked with him about doing it, and he was on board, and he did. He did a great job. But then as we talked more and more, I realized that, no, God had, like, put our lives together for us to have a relationship, a friendship, and, and for, at that time, for me to, to help him in a really tough time. So what you'll find, what I'm saying is, just side note here for what it's worth, God will take you places, and oftentimes why you think you're going there, he has a totally different reason. And I think that's what's happening here with this woman. She says to him in verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for me a drink? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The history there is pretty fascinating. Uh, the Samaritans uh, had become known as racial half-breeds. They were Jew Jews that had intermarried with outside peoples, and they had built their own temple and had tried to establish their own uh, Jewishness there within their own systems. Um, and then uh, after this, so about 400 years before Jesus shows up, um, they, they build a temple. 100 years after that, the Jews tear it down. So just a few hundred years before Jesus shows up on the scene, there's been these hundreds of years of just animosity towards each other, of hatred towards each other. Uh, the, the Samaritans did not hold the, Jewish scripture, the same Jewish scripture that the Jews did. Uh, they they uh, would hold on to the first five books of the Old Testament, but nothing more. And then a short time later, after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jewish leaders would codify a law that reflected the basic sen sentiment during Jesus' time. And, and it went like this, that... If you touched a Samaritan, you would be ceremonially unclean. And that was a big deal for a Jewish person to be ceremonially unclean, if you know that background. In all of that, Jesus doesn't see a Samaritan. He sees a woman that needs the love of the Father. 
in this conversation, it's been noted that Jesus breaks down every possible barrier in coming to this woman. He, he breaks down the racial barrier between Jews and Samaritans. He breaks down this gender barrier between a man and a woman. He breaks down the moral barrier of a moral person, an immoral person. He breaks down the social barrier here that these two people would never associate together, and yet he does. So Jesus shows us that the gospel message that that the gospel message, and that is the gospel message, that he's the only one who will bring satisfaction to your life, cuts through every barrier. All of it. That there is no Jew or Gentile, as Paul will later say. That man, woman, moral barrier, immoral, moral, social barrier, that you would never associate with this person, all those things Jesus puts to rest and he says, that does not matter in my economy. I'm, I'm amazed in my travels, specifically I think back to um, some recent trips to South Asia, where when we tell people about Jesus and they're hearing the gospel of Jesus, that they know Jesus is for them. Right, That they don't go, well, that sounds like uh, that's a religion for Americans or the rich or the elite. That something in them, as we tell this story, God working in them, I really believe, he opens their heart to say, I'm for you. This isn't just for a certain group of people. This isn't just for, again, the rich, the elite, the, uh, the people who have their act together. Jesus is for all people. So he sees this woman. That's, that's the number one thing I want you to see in this exchange, that he sees this woman. But he doesn't just see her. He, he knows her. We get to verse 16, where Jesus says to her, go, go call your husband and come here. And it's interesting how she responds, right? Because she says, I have no husband. Which was right, and that was her trying to kind of put down like a sore subject. But he says to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you, have, one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus knows everything about this woman. And he goes straight to her area of greatest need and her area of greatest sin. And you'll find that is what Jesus often does in all of our lives. He goes to our greatest area of guilt or despair or hopelessness, and he says, let's deal with that. It's where we feel a little bruising, and he goes there in a way in which it hurts, but it's gentle. Again, I'm just speaking from experience, and I think you see it in this story too, that he wants us to kind of just put it out on the table. I have no husband which is true, but undoubtedly her intention was to move away from that sensitive area of her life while masking the guilt and the hurt. And somehow Jesus just gently gets the whole truth out there. I'm sure she would have much preferred not to go here. It's been well documented that more than likely her being at the well at that time of the day, at noon, it's hot. Why is she there when... Everybody else would have shown up at the well early in the morning. Well, because she's an outcast among her people. That's what, that's what we are to take from the context here. I read uh, an excellent article. It's called the, it was titled, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. It's from an academic journal, 
and uh, somebody had tossed it my way um, a little while back. And I went back to it this week as I was looking at this story. And in the article, the author makes the case that as our culture has developed, the world we're living in today where like, it's become, hey, you do you and I do me and let's all get along and just like be okay with that. And in that culture that's been developed, the whole idea was if, if we're okay with each of us having our own set of morals, our own set of ideas that govern our lives, that in that we won't have as much guilt, right? If everybody gets to do what they want, they toss out the things they don't like. Like if you read the Bible and you say, uh, that part in there, I'm not so sure about that. I'm going to toss that out. That's supposed to make you feel better because you're saying, you know, I get, to, I get to do me. I get to make up what I think is right for my life. And the argument he makes in the article is that, like, you should be feeling less guilty, but it doesn't look like that's happening. When you look around and talk with people, no one feels less guilty than before. And yet, this was the whole idea behind this cultural movement. I was talking to a UGA student this week, and he just brought up this idea of, like, don't you think all religions basically take you to the same place? And if you were there for the rest of the conversation, you know, like, why he was saying that, because and as he was grappling with the idea of how to reconcile, like, how all these religions uh, work and, and like the possibility that some could be right and some could be wrong or one could be right and all could be wrong. He was hoping just to like put them all together in a way in which like no one had to worry about being wrong. Because if I'm wrong or others are wrong, then you have to deal with guilt. So that article goes on to say this, the author says, whatever donation I make to a charitable organization it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough or support medical research enough or otherwise do the things that would render me morally blameless. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation, there's an endless list of items for which you or I can take the rap. To be found blameless is a pipe dream. For the demands on an active conscience are literally as endless as an active imagination's ability to conjure them. In a world of relentlessly prolifer proliferating knowledge, there's no easy way of deciding how much guilt is enough and how much is too much. Basically, our culture has gotten to a point where we've tried to redefine morality, we've changed out the parts that we don't like, even tossing out the scriptures or those kind of things, and yet we're still guilty and we know it. All that's, all that's a backdrop for what I could not get out of my mind this week as I read through the story for probably the 500th time is here's a woman who's shown up as an outcast in the middle of the day taking water from a well, and I kept looking for where she might feel some guilt right, for maybe what her life has turned out to be, where she could be feeling just guilty. Put it this way, if I tell people I'm a pastor, guess what they do? They're like, um, they, they immediately start to try to like make themselves look good, 
Like, hey, you know, I don't know if you knew, but I did that. You know, like people, and, and, and they're especially not going to bring out any baggage. And yet, with this conversation, with this Jewish rabbi, she knows he's a rabbi. Knows it by the, what he's wearing, how he talks. She even calls him a prophet later. Even in all of that, even with, when all of her life gets out on the table, I can't find any hint of guilt. That's what I kept thinking about. Like, that's amazing that she doesn't just say, gosh, I'm such a sinner, like Peter did. Just get away from me. In fact, she becomes a little more bold and she starts asking him questions about worship and things like that. And what we find from this encounter with Jesus is that God is not the one who makes you feel guilty. That, I th- I, that's the work of the enemy, Satan, the accuser. Our, our guilt arises from our sins, but Jesus doesn't come to make us feel guilty. Jesus comes to set us free. And she had freedom in that moment with Jesus to be able to put everything on the table to be fully known and yet not need to like flee or attempt to make herself feel better about herself, self-justifying herself. Remember what Jesus said in John 3, I did not come in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So in Jesus, he sees us, he truly knows us, yet, here's, here's point three, we are still, with him knowing us, truly loved. I don't know, you know, you start a relationship with someone, could be a friendship, could be a romantic relationship, boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, and as you get to know that person, you know, better and better, you start thinking about, oh, what if they knew this about me? Would they still love me? This friend that I have, we've gotten to be really good friends, and, and then there's just something in the back of my mind, though, like if they knew this about me, would they still want to be a friend like they've been? And Jesus shows us that he really knows who this woman is, and yet his affections do not change. He loves her. Verse 23, it says, The hour is coming, it is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is seeking. That's come up a few times where Jesus is saying, God sent me after you. Like, that's how much I love you. It's just like the shepherd who goes looking for the lost sheep. The Father comes seeking us. And if you think about this conversation as a whole, it says if Jesus, the creator God, because that's what John says he is. If you go back to the prologue and John says Jesus was there at the beginning with God. He was God. He was the word at the beginning. Then it's quite amazing to think about this conversation as a whole, right? That, that there's this outcast woman, this no one, who has no social standing, who even in like can just say what she wants to Jesus, object to some of the things he says in this conversation. He's so patient. He's so kind. In fact, if you return to just the whole idea of him asking for a drink of water, that's amazing in itself. Jesus is fully God. John said he, he was there at the beginning with God, but yet he's thirsty. And if you go back to this idea where he, he just says, or go back to what he does, I, I need a drink of water. 
like in that he was reaching out to touch her. He, to, she would have known to handle anything I'm handling makes him unclean. To be unclean for a Jewish person, you, you would have to tell people. You, once you become unclean, you'd have to tell people, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. She would be viewed as an unclean person to them. And she's, that's why she's so amazed that he would ask for a drink. But Jesus did this all through his time. Whether it was her, the woman at the well, saying, hey, can I have a drink? And like reaching out to touch her. Or if it was a leper that he touched. Because with Jesus, it was never that he would become unclean by touching them. Because he was God, they were made clean by him touching them. Not the opposite. So he asked for a drink, and he says to her, whoever drinks of this water I give will never be thirsty again. The water I give will be come in them, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus loves her. He wants her to have this eternal life. And it puts on display, I think, a scriptural... uh, something from the scriptures that we've seen before. Just the way in which he even says this, it takes you back to a passage that you, like you find in Jeremiah. Jesus would have had this in his mind, I'm sure. In Jeremiah 2.13, it says, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that have and can hold no water. So in God, we find the fountain of living water, like all the water we would ever need. And what he says there in Jeremiah is what we do, even in knowing that, is we go out and we go dig our own wells, right? We think, I know what God's offering me. I know what's available through him. And yet I'm still going to turn over here and just dig my own well. I know, Jesus, that like satisfaction is only in you but I really want this. And I think this is what's going to fulfill me right now. You start digging that well. And you go over here, and you, you, can, name, right, you can name what those things are. In my mind, it usually goes to a relationship, putting a relationship above Jesus of, with someone else. It could be money, it could be status, it can be, you name it, right? Any idol. And you dig out a well that says, like, this is, this is what I think is going to bring me fulfillment. If I get this promotion, if I get to this place, if I get this degree, like, that's what's going to bring it. And you dig that well, you dig that well, and then what he says in Jeremiah is, those wells hold no water. You just keep thirsty. You keep thirsting. Jesus is saying to, to her, and God's been saying to his people, Like, you only be fulfilled and satisfied in me. That's it. The gift of the gospel that Jesus offers her is himself. He says to the woman, at one point, this is one of my favorite parts of the conversation, he said, are you greater? She asked him, are you greater than our father Jacob? That was in verse 11. And it's like, we're, the, we're on the other side, and we're like, man, if you only knew. They, uh, he's greater than Jacob. In verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, 
This is where we finish the reading. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I am who you speak of. It's like, I don't know if you've ever seen any of those undercover boss episodes or uh, maybe you've seen some kind of celebrity go undercover and like what it was like. Um, I saw a video of, it was a Super Bowl quarterback who uh, put on a disguise and he went to a community college football team and he was playing, like he went out for practice with them. Super Bowl quarterback playing on a community college and he's just throwing the ball, like he's like knocking over receivers as he throws the ball. Uh, it's just like so on target and so powerful. And, and they're just like, who is this guy? They're starting to pick up like this is not like everybody else on the field right here. This is not who, like this is not like who are, like there's no way this guy's on our team. That's what it reminds me of because in this conversation, right, that this woman's having with Jesus, she just has no idea who she's talking to until she does. In verse 28, this is so good. Look at that verse with me. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Christ? So, this is just the last few thoughts here. She sets down her water jar. What is, just think about the significance in that. She came to get water because she needed to be physically filled. And that's what the whole conversation started with with Jesus. And by the time it was finished, she put that water jar down because she knew she had found something far more fulfilling than that water jar. She believed him that he offered water where she would never thirst again. So she sets down her water jar. And then she goes and she says to her people, I found someone who knows everything about me. That's amazing, okay? Because, again, let, let's go there in our own minds. Maybe this is just me. But I'm not a huge fan of, like, just, like, putting all my dirty laundry on, on the table. That's hard to do for me. Like, I, I know as a Christian, there's, I need to confess. I need to come clear. I need to be transparent that, like, you know, there's times where I try to justify myself, make myself look good, instead of just knowing that the gospel and letting that sink deep, that like I'm, I'm nothing without Christ. And yet that's, that's our tendency. That's who we are in our flesh. And so it's amazing for her to go, I found someone who knows everything that I did. Who, who wants everything out there? But she's saying that in an excited way, like this is great. And I think it goes back to what I was trying to get at. I was just like, why is that? Because there's no guilt. She's been set free now. In Jesus, when you, when you put it all on the table, he sets us free. There's nothing to be guilty about. He forgives us of those sins. And she's found freedom in that, enough to like go and tell her friends and all the people and and. They, he, they like, hey, you come stay with us. I'm sorry, I got to say this. In John chapter 2, this is, this is like too good. In John chapter 2, the very end of it, Craven mentioned this last week when he was teaching. It says that Jesus knew all people. Look, you just have to look at it with me. Okay, go back to John chapter 2. Verse 23, 24, 25, that, that kind of, there's a little section there. John's doing a little setup for us. And it says, 
But Jesus, verse 24 says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And then in verse 25, it repeats again, for he himself knew what was in man. So in that passage, he's saying, John's telling us like Jesus knows everything about people. And then you have next his encounter with Nicodemus that Craven talked about and taught through last week. He was a moral man who had done all the right things and Jesus knew what was really in his heart. As moral as he was, he had not come to a place where he knew he needed God. Okay? Then you get to this woman. She's the same. Like you have, John does this on purpose, right? This is not like by accident. He's very intentional with the way he writes his gospel. We've got a a man who's moral, who knows, uh, that thinks he's made himself righteous and doesn't need God. He eventually will. And then we have this woman who's totally immoral. And Jesus says, it's the moral person, it's the immoral person. Both need me. The gospel levels the playing field. So no matter where you're standing, you need Jesus. If you're moral and immoral, you need Jesus. And so this woman sets down her jar. She goes back to her people and she says, could this be? John says earlier in his gospel that Jesus is the light. What's the light do? It exposes. It puts everything on display. That's what Jesus does in our lives. When you encounter him, you'll get to a place where it's all on the table. All the things maybe I don't, I don't want out there, it's on the table. And yet Jesus can deal with it all. He can make it all right. Finally, uh, I t- I told, I'm sorry, I, I told you I was about to be done. This is it, I promise. They said to the woman in verse 42, it's no longer because of what you said that we, that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The Samaritan said, this isn't just the savior of the Jews. This is the savior of the world. He's come not just for those people. He's come for me too. I'm going to leave it there for us. You, in whatever place you're at today, this is so applicable to the believer and those who have not yet believed in Christ. As a believer, I am so prone to wonder. I'm so prone to look and dig wells to find satisfaction outside of Christ. And it never satisfies. If you hear anything today, it's this, that it's only in Jesus that you will be satisfied. And I hope as believers, you'd all join in that refrain with me and and say amen to that. But if you're not a believer in Christ, you may have gotten to a point where you're like, man, I dug, I've dug some wells. I've done some, like, I keep thinking that this is what's going to make me happy. This is going to bring joy. And it hasn't. And it's the same for you, that only in Jesus will you truly be satisfied.